Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. In this episode, we are replaying a live public event that we had where we partnered with the Hamilton chapter of Myeloma Canada and interviewed Dr. Hira Mien, a hematology oncologist from McMaster University specializing in the treatment of multiple myeloma, which are forms of blood cancers. She provides her candid thoughts and reflections on how the seven skills work for both the patient and family side and the healthcare provider side. We even take some audience questions. So now I'd love to introduce uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Hira Mien, who I think some of you know. She is a hematology oncologist at the Jervinsky Cancer Center. We do research together. And thanks for joining us today, Hira. Perfect. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm delighted to be here. Hira, I'm going to start off with an easy question for you. I know that you've listened. Like, what, do you, what have you sort of thought? Like, what are your general thoughts about our podcast? You know, I have listened to the podcast with a lot of interest because I think it's resonated a lot with me um, as an oncologist, but more so as a multiple myeloma specialist. And, and for people who know me know that I feel very passionately about multiple myeloma. It's because multiple myeloma is, is it's an incurable disease, but a disease that has this really variable trajectory, right? Patients can live from, from a few years to over 10 years, and it's it's ups and downs and curves and bumps along this roadmap that, that you've both described. So when I listened to the podcast, I just thought, you know, it gives both patients and also, to be honest, myself, some practical tools about how to navigate this journey. And so, you know, a lot of the keys that you're describing, I thought, that's a practical tip that I can take or, or that um, I'm hoping some of my patients can take that will help them navigate this, this long and variable roadmap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for putting it together. And I'm, um, I, I, I think that, you know, I have at least really enjoyed it. And, and I'm hoping that more people will as well. You talked about this idea of the walking two roads and the zooming out are, are really important, but hard to do because there's so much uncertainty. And so I wonder if, I guess it's sort of two questions, if there were certain keys that you thought was really important specific to my, uh, multiple myeloma or, and or those two in particular, like how you juggle a lot of this uncertainty. You know what, Sian, you've, you've kind of read my mind and it's probably because we work together on lots of other things. Um, those are the two keys that I thought were actually probably the most um, uh, most informative and probably the most too important for, for, for multiple myeloma patients. The, the walking two roads, you know, as an oncologist, um, as, as a partner in your patient care roadmap, and, you know, we may know you for 10 years, for 12 years, we, we always want to be hopeful. You know, we are wanting that next treatment line, fighting to get you into that clinical trial. Um, but at the same time, we want to be able to walk that parallel road of what if I don't make it to that clinical trial? Or I know that the clinical trial will at one point, my disease will progress, right? Because we know what myeloma is a, for the time being a non-curable disease and that it is a life-limiting disease. So walking those two roads where I, and it's about, it is 
it's about being hopeful, but, but that hope is, as you both described in the podcast changes over time, right? So first line treatment, I want to get you X number of years with good quality of life relapse, sixth line treatment. I'm not going to, we're not going to get four years out of this. We're not going to, we are going to have some symptoms. So now our hope and expectations need to change along the way. And the other one that I thought was really pertinent is this zooming out. And, and maybe that's more so for us as well as healthcare practitioners, because as a hematologist, you know, it's all about numbers. What's the hemoglobin? What's the myeloma protein? What was it last month? What was it last year? It's so easy to just fixate on that. Um, but a lot of times, and I have to say, you know, it's an important lesson for me as well. Zoom out. Okay. Now I'm on first line treatment, but now I'm on sixth line treatment. There are going to be different trajectories. And, and I don't think um, sometimes we give ourselves enough of an opportunity. We spend so much time in clinics talking about my M protein went from 15 to 17, but I don't know if we spend enough time saying what, what does that mean? And where am I on that roadmap? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, not everyone is ready to hear the same information at the same point of the illness. So how do you um, assess uh, which patient you're seeing in front of you, like, you know, where they're at in terms of wanting and needing information. Yeah. So that's a super important. Thanks for asking that, Sammy. You know, one of the things when I was listening to the podcast, one of your keys was know your style. And, and it was about patients really um, communicating that very openly to their healthcare practitioners about this is how I want to know information. Then this is how much I want to know. Or if I don't want to know this, this is the person, you know, in my inner circle who want to know that. I think because we get to know our patients over a long time span, um, I do think, you know, as time goes along, you get to know people really well and you get to know their style. But, you know, a take home message for me from that podcast was, I wish I knew that up front. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish, I wish patients would tell me or, or, or um, recognize, because I also have my own style, which is going to be different from other clinicians. Mm -hmm. And then patients have their own styles. But I wish there was a way, you know, upfront that we establish, okay, this is how I want. Mm -hmm. I do want to know my myeloma protein number each time or, or no, you know, I want the bigger picture and I want conversations around that. So I, I think we're lucky in a sense in myeloma that we follow patients for a long time. And that's why I love treating myeloma because you get to know their kids and their grandkids and, mm -hmm. and it is a long disease trajectory, but um, having some of those conversations about knowing their style and also knowing my style mm -hmm. and confronting that, um, I think are important points that we can work towards further in the future. And, you know, it, when you're speaking, it reminds me that, um, you know, some of the literature says that the longer we know our patients as um, physicians, the more at risk we are for overestimating things and just feeling just so um, attached. We're only people, you know, uh, by the way, everyone here, we're humans and we make connections uh, with our patients and families. And the literature does show that we do tend to overestimate things because that's where our heart is and our hope. 
and I mean, I think you're, you're, you'd probably be absolutely right. We develop, you know, um, I'm sure most of you develop this very long-term relationship with your oncologist. So we are truly um, as invested, you know, we, we want to hope just as much as you do, we want to get you into that next line treatment. And, and sometimes it's, it's just, you know, you've mentioned this in your podcast as well. It's, it's easier to do that than mm-hmm. to talk about what does that mean? So, you know, a challenge that I often find myself in is, you know, after six, seventh line of treatment, you're working so hard to get a patient into a clinical trial and it's the right thing. I want to get the patient into the clinical trial. And as long as we're both on the same goal, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you lose focus of, of, you know, that clinical trial, what does that mean? They're going to, you know, have to go to potentially princess Margaret hospital twice a week, blood work in between Mm -hmm. poor quality of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, am I, am I still in line with their wishes or have I even stopped am I blinded to it now because I'm so overly invested in that? So it is, it's, it's a challenge. Like you said, you know, we, um, just as patients take home, um, baggage, we take home baggage and we try our best to, um, balance it out and do what we think we're doing best for the patient. But at times, you know, and I've, I've openly asked patients that you tell me, am I, am I still, you know, at first line treatment, you and I, I think we're aligned. Am I still aligned with you or am I now wearing off into something that's not part of where you see your roadmap going? Um, and there are long conversations and they're hard conversations and it's easier to look at a hemoglobin and talk about that sometimes. So um, for sure, it's a challenge. You're so honest. <laughs> I- <laughs> It's because I do, I struggle with it. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm just like everyone else on this call. Like there's, there's, there's often, I tell patients that there's often no right or wrong answer. And, and, you know, when I feel that, um, if I feel really strongly against it, I will say it, you know, but then a lot of times, and I think people, when they think of treatments in oncology, they think it's very black and white. It's not. There's actually a lot of gray areas where I'm looking at you and at helping for you to help me make those decisions as well. Um, and so it is, it's, it's, a, it's a team effort and, and, and we want to stay a team as long as we can and change as a team as well and adapt along. I think it's a really important message that you're sending today to this group, which is, um, your doctors might be, and nurses might be waiting for you to start the conversation as patients and families and give them permission to go there with you. Um, I often tell patients to say, you know, if this is your, the way you are, um, I'm the kind of person who um, needs information. Just so you know, doctor, um, you, I, I thrive on information. I'm a control freak. I am. Um, I, I feel better when I can make a plan. I don't want it sugar-coated. Uh, you may see me cry. You may upset me, but I need it. Like I'll be fine. Uh, but I need to land here somewhere with my feet in the sand. So, um, and you know, I have other patients who tell me, no, my whole entire life, I have really not really wanted that kind. I'm a day-to-day hour by our kind of person. Um, and so I say to those people, 
great. I mean, we're not going to change you, but this is what it means if you're a day by day, hour to hour type of person. Uh, these are the kinds of pickles we might run into over time um, if, if we can't balance looking a little bit ahead. Um, and by the way, is anyone in your crew not a day to day person? Because I want to invite them into the conversation. So we are all different and no style is right or wrong. Um, but mm -hmm. many doctors are waiting for you to declare your style. Um, and then they breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, the elephant's not on the ceiling anymore. Or I can speak openly and honestly to this person. Not that ev doctors ever lie, um, but it's easier to focus on the ECG, the potassium, the, the Lasix dose, the, the hemoglobin, whatever it is. Yeah. I was going to pick up on this, but I have a burning question. So I'm going to go with that first. My burning question is this, as you know, like, you know, I, I do research in this field called palliative care, which is often associated with, you know, very close to end of life and dying. And as we talked about at the beginning, we are really trying to improve the whole experience and really talk about this palliative approach to care that could be used and peppered in throughout. And I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are of that word, the P word, the palliative care word in the context of multiple myeloma. Um, and what are some of the challenges specific to that? Because even though our intent is to have a good experience and have open information, I think language really might still, you know, muck us up a bit. So what are your thoughts here? I, I think I would agree with you, CN. You know, I prefer to, like, if, if I could choose another word, I would call it supportive care. Um, um, because myeloma especially, you know, is a disease that has a high symptom burden when you're first diagnosed, you may present with a fracture, you may present, and that's, it's a functional impairment. And those symptoms, you know, they get better, and then you relapse and they get worse again, and they get better. And overall, the trajectory is often, you know, downwards in that the, the, the impairments keep adding up. And sometimes, you know, it's giving people chemotherapy, giving people a transplant, all of that does control the myeloma numbers, but, but making you feel better is going to be all of the other things that, that we don't do such a good job as oncologists, right? Because I, I'm already, and, and I, I, I realize that as a limitation because, you know, I can only think of chemotherapy and what dose and what to get to transplant. And so all of the other things, how you're doing, how your family is doing, how you're dealing with this, what's your pain like? Um, and we know that from research we've done that pain, symptoms of pain, not feeling well, tiredness, you know, either it's from the disease or it's from the treatment. And so involving supportive care as early on as possible, I think is very important again in myeloma because um, myeloma is a disease of high symptoms and, and, and symptoms that change over time. So actually having, I wish a specialist on board right from the beginning who is an expert in that would optimize patient care. And we know that from the literature, right? Um, from in other cancers where you have earlier supportive care, patients do better. They actually live longer. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just equally as important or more important in myeloma. You know, there's another important partner. Um, we've talked about the hematology team and the palliative care or supportive care team, uh, the patients, the families. And, you know, I think often we forget about people's uh, family doctors uh, and, and their, you know, what we sometimes call the primary care team. 
and here you talk about everyone's busy um, with their piece of um, expertise, whether it's the uh, oncology or the symptom management. And there's often not a lot of time to have these um, other conversations, but don't forget uh, people out there that uh, your family doctor, um, uh, you know, knows you and knows your entire family as well. And so again, um, can often be an important partner for, um, you know, the family members and can, and can be utilized to help make meaning of what's happening um, outside of your myeloma, uh, receive the consultations from Hira or your oncologist, and um, maybe you have, many people have other specialists involved too. Uh, we find that when people start seeing a specialist, whether it's a cardiologist, a respirologist, an oncologist, uh, they tend to get very, very busy with that specialist team. And because we only have so much time, we drift away from our primary care practices or our family practices. And um, it probably is important for all of us to try our very best to balance um, you know, maintaining a relationship with uh, our primary care practice as well. Hira, do you find that people see their primary care practice less and less as they're seeing you more and more? Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's because we keep them so busy, you know, you're coming for chemo twice a week, you're coming for hydration for blood work. And, and sometimes I wish I had more, having more support from some of the other, whether it's the family doctor or some of the other support structures, it would, it would actually make my job a little bit easier. Um, and I would feel better about it as well, because then I know that I can focus again, more on some of some of the other things. And that the patient's overall care is still being taken care of by, by someone else. So, you know, I think, Sammy, we don't do a good job of integrating family doctors with which we've had, a, you know, the patients have had a long-term relationship mm -hmm. and that little link probably needs to be strengthened um, in, in, in our patients. Mm -hmm. And I think the family doctors are so reassured that their patients are getting the best care from the specialist. And so they too have told me they need to work harder at keeping their families and their patients in their clinic. Um, so it's everyone's business just to acknowledge that it's probably the best support for everyone to balance relationships between everyone. And I find once that communication line, to be honest, open, Sammy, between even the specialists and the family doctors, you know, if there's specific scenarios where I'm struggling with um, and, 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 you know, then we've been in touch with the family doctor, it actually opens mm -hmm. this insight that I had never had into a patient. Mm -hmm. um, because again, they know the, the, the family structure, they know They've known the patient a lot longer than I have. And, and, and it sometimes helps in my decision-making as well to get that additional insight that I just have not had, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, we're so, so focused on one aspect of care sometimes. And afterwards, the family practice continues to care for the survivors. And so that's another reason to stay connected. So that's another piece of advice out here for you folks listening is don't forget your family practice, check in once in a while. Absolutely. I, I really think about my own care and how connected people are, especially to their inner crew. I'm putting family in, yeah. in quotation marks here, but 
from your experience, I mean, how critical are these supporting cast members, these family people in the journey, in the support, in when they leave the hospital and go home? And, and, and I guess, is there attention, enough attention paid to them in the system for, for what they're going through and what they need to do? Uh, you know, Sian, essential, this inner crew that you talk about, you know, this is a, a, a long-term road with so many bumps along the way. So this, this having this support structure, this inner crew is so important in myeloma, um, both to help you kind of on a day-to-day coming in for chemo twice a week, but also when things go unexpected and, and that road is changing. And I wish we would pay more attention to them. I don't know if we pay enough attention to them. I can tell you we rely heavily on them, probably without acknowledging that, right? So um, we'll, we would just say, yep, come in for this chemo for the next, you know, X number of weeks, twice a week, but come in for blood work the day prior and then come in for hydration. That's four out of the five weekdays. Someone's mm-hmm. driving you. I'm relying on the caregiver without mm-hmm. actually thinking, um, okay, well, that person also works, and they also have their own young children, and a parking at JCC costs a fortune, um, and how are, how is it all actually going to be done? Um, so sometimes it's this invisible force behind it that we actually don't want to acknowledge that it exists and that it's doing all the work because it's easier to not, right? We need them to do the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, they're doing the work, like you said, Um, but they're also having their own illness experience as well, right? Because their partner is changing and their life is changing and their life will change as well. Um, We've had caregivers tell us that they feel sometimes invisible um, and uh, that's hard for them. So so, have have you ever been asked or is it too awkward for family members to ask to see you uh, by themselves or speak to you by themselves? Um, I, I only say that because we did have a couple of people who've told us, um, I really actually couldn't ask the questions that I wanted to ask because I didn't want to ask it in front of my partner. So absolutely, Sammy, we would, we would invite that, you know, we always have to make sure that our patients, which are my primary responsibility is okay with that, that they would like this information shared that, that um, they would allow it. Um, and that they feel comfortable with it, um, you know, but certainly there are time points where um, it's uh, everyone's style is different and and sometimes to get information across to a a caregiver um, is sometimes easier or maybe more effective even for that patient Um, so I mean we're we're always open to it and you know it's we work as a team and and for the patients um, who are on the call know that you know it's definitely not myself alone Um, my team is Wendy Bercy, who most of you know, my, my oncology nurse. Um, I am incomplete without her. Um, she does, you know, 55% of the work. I do 45. Um, and so it's, it's also even within our clinic, you know, one of the interesting things, and this is personal to my clinic, Wendy and I know each other's strengths, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that Wendy is going to do a lot 
sometimes when, when there's issues around caregiver, particular issues that I think I'm not going to be so good at addressing, I know Wendy will be. And so we work together as a team and, I, and, and we both know each other's limitations between ourselves as well. And so I think with doing that, we can hopefully, um, you know, I mean, I've had patients that have asked me specifically if they could talk to Wendy alone about an issue. And I love that. I, 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 I love that because it's, we want to do what's absolutely best for you, right? Um, and, and, and having open communication about that actually helps the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can I follow up on that? Because the other thing we get asked a lot is that patients and families are scared to advocate for themselves because they are fearful that if they sound too pushy or too aggressive, that they're going to get labeled as the bad patient and get bad care and get in the bad books. Or um, And I, I, I never know what to say about that because I'm sort of in both sides. Like I know how healthcare providers think and I know what it is to be a patient and family. And so I've, you know, I'm, and I, we're all Canadians. So I'm like, we know how to be diplomatic and put, put forth our opinion without pushing, you know, in the U S it's very different, but the, but it comes up so often. And I wonder, and I know that I, I have a feeling, I know what you're going to say, but this is a legitimate thing. And I wonder if you have any advice to patients and families of, of how they can advocate for themselves without, feeling like they're going to be um, at risk of, mm. of being, vulnerable. you know, sort of vulnerable. Yeah. So, um, Sian, it's, 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 it's a great question. And you know what a lot of patients will tell you, well, Dr. Mian, your clinic has 35 patients and you're, you've slotted us all in, in like 10 minute slots and, and it's go, 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 go. We're turning over the rooms and we're going faster and faster and the rooms need to be turned over and cleaned over. And, and, and it is sometimes, it is sometimes chaotic, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we, we want to and if we are going too fast, pause us, stop us, right? Stop us and say, you know what? Maybe I didn't get enough of an opportunity to ask all my questions today, but can we carve out X time next time I see you? So I think we, we all... Um, we all like to be, to be honest, I, we all love to be challenged as well. You know, why this treatment? Why not this? Um, I often get questions actually more around that, which are easier for me to answer. You know, why this treatment? Why not that? Um, I don't often get questions about where is this treatment in the long roadmap? Like, where am I? I don't get a lot of questions like that. Like, what does it mean um, when I'm on sixth line treatment and you're trying so hard to get me into that clinical trial and you're telling me to go to PMH like five days a week? what does that mean? Um, I don't get a lot of questions like that. And so I think, um, and, and we, we can accommodate, you know, um, so if I know, if I know that I need to have a tougher conversation, a longer conversations with someone, I will schedule them in at 9am. I know I'm not two hours behind by that time, right? So mm-hmm. some of it is just both of us working together as a team. Um, we have, you know, I have my, I wish, I wish I didn't have to see 35 patients in one day, um, but there, there's certain realities around that. So just working together. Um, and, and I think most, most practitioners are open to, to questions. We don't get a lot of the tougher questions um, that I think would be even harder to answer. Which, and, and when you think about it, you should, right? You should have tons of tough questions. Um, and the fact that you don't, it, it has nothing to do with you here, of course. Yeah. But it's again, this um, 
people don't even know what they don't know. They don't know what to ask. Um, and if they're not invited to ask, then just the questions don't come. Um, yeah. And I sometimes, you know, I look back at it and sometimes I think, is it, uh, what, what can I do differently? And, you know, Sammy, a, a common scenario where I think that uh, you, you talk about like these transition points in a disease trajectory, you know, putting patients, for example, into clinical trials in very relapsed settings. I, I feel like sometimes the patients see me struggling so much and they, they are also struggling that it's all about getting into the clinical trial, just getting into the clinical trial. But no one stops and asks, what do we expect out of this trial? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's actually going to work? And if it doesn't work, what happens after? I never get that question. Mm-hmm. So much of our, our conversation is about, I need to get the hemoglobin to 90 to get you into that clinical trial. And I'm going to bring you in a transfusion on a Saturday. And I won't really tell the clinical trial folks and, and we'll get you in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of the, the you know, we've had um, patients who, for example, we are about to take the transplant um, and, and it becomes clear that they're not aware that myeloma is not curable, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's like a, um, and so what they expect out of a transplant is, is entirely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and so sometimes you, you're, you're, you're like, where, where did we miss out on this? Um, and, and, you know, initially when you're diagnosed, I'm sure a lot of people, if there's an initial shock. And so getting information in little chunks and packages along the way, hopefully clarify some of that, but I'll always, always ask, stop us, pause us, challenge mm-hmm. us. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's our job to, to get those tough questions. Um, you know, I was delighted to read the, um, uh, it was the, uh, the myeloma patient handbook on the website, right? <laughs> and uh, it has tons of information, tons of points about um, working with your healthcare team and how to advocate for yourself. A lot of it was very synergistic to, uh, you know, what we talk about in the podcast. They they support each other, these two things. Um, but I, I was surprised, I will say that um, I was, I always do this just because I'm obsessed. I'm looking through and trying to find where um, they talk about, you know, the prognosis or how to gauge where you're at in the illness experience, um, you know, what to expect or acknowledge when things, um, you know, when the treatments stop working, what does myeloma look like then? And what happens then? Those chapters are missing from the patient handbook. And Sammy, that comes to your point about walking the two roads. We're, we're a lot better at walking one road without thinking about the other road. And, and I think, um, you know, more and more, um, I think it's, it's, again, important to talk about that, it, it, to know where exactly you're going. And sometimes it's just a harder thing to do. So it's easiest to not do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, right. It's just easiest to not do it. But I think, you know, just again, a, a plug for myeloma Canada and myeloma Canada initiatives. I think there's a lot of emphasis on that now, you know, they have a um, kind of a, um, a patient navigator tool, how to, how to really be more in control. So there's, there is a focus really within the organization as well now, where they really want you to be, feel like, you know, all the information. 
Um, mm -hmm. And knowing all of the information will feel like you're more in control and one step ahead of the curve. So mm -hmm. um, we will try to be better. I'm just looking at, I'm kind of at the time yeah. because we did promise that um, people could ask questions. We had a comment in the box and I'll read it. David, I see that you might have been muted. Did you have a question? Oh, oh I did. Um, yes, Dr. Meehan, uh, you mentioned that, that um, you would prefer the term supportive care, you know, versus palliative. And, and patients uh, can certainly identify with that. With, with most patients in my experience, the, the term palliative has kind of a negative connotation. Um, so why don't we change the term to supportive care? You know, or symptom control or something that is, is more positive and doesn't have those negative connotations and can be implemented through the entire journey of, of, of the disease. And then, for example, you, Dr. Winemaker, would you object to being called a supportive care physician? Sammy, I'll let you take that one because it's sure. a fantastic point and it, you know, a it, it, um, great point, Dave. You know, I, I don't, I can count on one hand in 17 years of full-time palliative care uh, when I've introduced myself as a palliative care doctor. Um, so oh. having, having said that, um, you know, palliative care is just honest, open, good care. It, it is person-centered. It is whole person care. Um, I know I'm going to get shot down for saying this, but I personally think it at this point shouldn't be a specialty at all. I think we have not done the best job teaching all nurses and all doctors to be able to feel confident to provide a palliative approach to their patients and families, whether you're a cardiologist, a respirologist, a nephrologist, an oncologist, a hepatologist. Um, we should really be training people to be able to care for those patients from the beginning to the end of an illness. Um, and so I will rest when we don't need palliative care doctors at all anymore. So forget about just changing the name. I think we do away with us at some point. Um, and that's very provocative. And again, this is why I have a few friends and many enemies in my, in my area. But anyway, it's important right now to have palliative care specialists as consultants to come in and out of the care as needed if things get complex. But the rest of it should just be amazing care from uh, the teams that are already caring for patients, whether that's the specialist or the primary care practice, it's really just person-centered care. And so I feel it doesn't need a label at all. But I will say, Dave, it's a very, it's kind of controversial because very. people, have, because they fought a long time to be recognized as a specialty. We were only, palliative care in Canada was only recognized in 2012. Okay, so for all those years before, it wasn't even like a recognized specialty. So anyone could do it, but now you're supposed to have special training. The other thing is over time, people, on the other side, we'll say eventually when they meet us and we do this, they're going to just associate the term supportive care with death and dying. So it really doesn't solve the issue. It will just be changing names. I can see both sides of the argument. Um, and we anyway, I th think um, at the end of the day, it's sort of like this is why we're focusing on patients and families, because if you ask and, and sort of to uh, Max's point here, like there are different times where you want different kinds of information. If you know how to get what you need, who cares what it's called? Let's just get your experience to yeah, be better. That's so yeah, it, it's not only about your style, but it's about, I think just um, having the words uh, to Max's point of saying, this is a great time for me, you know, to, um, 
to sit back and and you know zoom like zoom out and and sort of you know see where this goes. But there are other times where I want lots of information. So just knowing that I have different information needs and that's okay. And I think I just want to clarify all the talk about walk to roads was not so that you're always walking to roads. I think once you have that conversation once of your illness understanding of what it's like, then you don't you you have that forever, and you can then spend more of your time on making plans and enjoying yourself and and you know having good quality of life but if you don't have that sort of context that big picture roadmap you don't even know where you're going it's like when you're driving somewhere far you don't have to check your map all the time you just stay on the highway until it's time to exit but if you don't know where you're heading you're like you're lost thank you anyone else brave wanting to put forth a question or yvette did you want to well uh... i yeah i it's it's a question and an observation as a caregiver but i also have um an extensive background in healthcare. So I'm not the usual kind of caregiver, but I also am, am sensitive to the lack, there's a gap and I'm trying to work out a, a, a good way to do that. Like even on, on these calls, like these are mostly patients, there's very few caregivers. And even when we got, to, we would meet together, you would see caregivers would be there because they would be bringing their family member. But it's not like we want to put them in a separate room and, and have a, a meeting, we need to really address that on a different level. Like, what does it mean to be a caregiver? And I know um, Myeloma Canada is working, helping to do that on a, another level where we help support, how do we help support patients and walk beside them um, as, as volunteers and, and, and part, of a, part of the network and support group. But then there's also this other thing, other part of that triangle, and that's the caregivers themselves, right? And and that can be very extensive and complex or even just who's your who's your go-to right in your journey and how do we get those go-to people supported as well and that's just the comment just my observation of where maybe i need to start putting a little bit more focus on to help my fellow caregivers it's okay to say oh yeah i'm the caregiver but what does that mean <laughs> right yes that's a great point yvette in our episode, Anticipate Ripple Effects, we try to shine a light on how essential the inner crew surrounding the patient is, and they're often the family and informal caregivers, and how they'll have a parallel illness journey and their own things that they'll have to face. And it's critical to support them. And I, and I think in that episode, we remind people to activate their village and to put their mask on first. But oftentimes, one of the biggest issues is that families don't recognize that they're playing a caregiver role and, quote unquote, don't apply for the job and it's bestowed on them. So I encourage people to listen to that episode because it's critical that caregivers are supported and they should be appreciated and recognized and valued in society. Um, and they really need a dedicated attention not to be an afterthought. And I know Sammy often says caregivers are not part of the healthcare team. Providers are part of the patient and family caregiver team. I see a great question on the chat side. Exactly. No, but the question is, is it necessary for a patient to acknowledge end of life is coming for successful palliative care? I guess what I could say is that, um, again, if we think about palliative care as something that's a philosophy of care um, that is peppered into the journey from right from the beginning, uh, until the end, then you can get successful palliative care uh, along the entire journey. And, and that's just going to be calibrated to where you're at at the time. Um, 
do people have to acknowledge end of life? No, no, no one has to do anything. But I think what we wanted to do was make sure people understand that if we go through the journey um, with our eyes closed, uh, as the illness changes over time, you put yourself at risk uh, and the people around you for living from crisis to crisis. And um, the it journey will feel more intense. You'll feel you have less time to plan. Um, your journey may feel less like it matches you as a person. Your family will be left um, the whole time with questions that may be unanswered. Um, so you don't have to do anything, but we find that the people that are able to, again, hope for the best and plan for the rest, they fare better. And I'm not gonna deny that. They just seem to be able to plan ahead. Um, they keep one step ahead. Um, they're proactive. Um, they feel like they're moving less from crisis to crisis. Um, so, you know, a lot of people do say, I asked for palliative care, you know, thinking they want a palliative care doctor, but my doctor said, you're not there yet, or um, you don't need it yet, or, you know, let's not go there yet. Um, and so I guess the question I would ask is, what are you looking for when you say you want uh, or need a palliative care doctor? Um, is I think something that I would be curious about. Um, are you looking for someone to help you connect the dots? Are you looking for someone to help you look at the long view? Are you trying to plan ahead? Are you worried about symptoms? Are you, do you, like many patients, have misconceptions about what the future is going to look like? I can't tell you how many patients and families have terrible horrible ideas about what their last year or months or weeks or days are going to look like. And I'm not talking specifically about myeloma, but um, that is probably 50% of my time I spend demystifying the horrible way we think we're all going to go. Um, I don't know if it's Hollywood that sets us up for these horrible ways to go. But um, again, myeloma aside, most of my patients, that's not the case, um, whatever illness they have. So again, my question would be, what are people looking for when they ask for palliative care and their physician may not understand what it is that they're looking for. So it's better to have a open discussion about um, the underlying meaning of that request. So I think I didn't answer that succinctly in any way. I'm going around and around and around. Um, can my colleagues help out or anything? No, no, I thought that was perfect because I was going to say exactly what you're going to say, but the idea that maybe if they give you that, um, oh, you're not there yet, you can say, no, no, I think, I bet you think I'm asking about end of life care. And I, but I heard this podcast that palliative care approach is not just about end of life care and complex symptom management. What I am looking for is a roadmap. I want to understand, I want to prepare for the future. I want to make the best time about the time that I have uh, for all the time that I have left. So I want to have a conversation about blah, 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 blah so that you can call, name it, right? Name that they think it's end of life or complex symptom management. That's not, you may not have complex symptoms. So then say what it is you're looking for, what Sammy's saying, which is might be just open conversations about the roadmap and the walking to roads and the zooming out. And I think that might, they might be able to connect that better. 
Um, and if they can't ask again and again, ask the nurse, ask the, the Wendy's of the group, ask them because that information exists. Do not have, do not accept the response. Oh, there's no crystal ball or we never know. No, no, there's, yeah, there's a lot more information out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So bottom line, I hope that you check out season one of the podcast, the episodes summarize these seven keys that we've been talking about. They are things that we have learned from all the patients and families that have walked this road before you. And they've given us these skills that are practical and simple to use. And I hope that you'll leave with phrases that you can use in your notebook and you can use in your next appointment. And see, and just to add to that point and to start using those skills early on, right? It's, it's about practice makes everything perfect. So what, so these keys that, that, you know, um, you, you have both introduced, how start to incorporate them up front. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hope, I hope I'm going to live for 10 years. I hope I'm going to live for 20 years. I actually hope myeloma is going to be cured by the time I even get there, but mm -hmm. Hey, these are some practical tips that I can use going forward, how to ask questions, how to incorporate everything from the day I'm diagnosed. And that will make any journey, um, mm -hmm. a, a lot more in the know and a lot better. So we're at time. I really want to thank the audience for their questions. I want to thank my Loma Canada for co-sponsoring this and Yvette from the Hamilton chapter for hosting us today. And I especially want to thank Dr. Hiram Yen for being so open and candid with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.